This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute and this is Democracy Sausage, which comes to you twice a week from the Crawford School of Public Policy and the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU, Australia's National University. Now, it's becoming almost tawdry to bang on about 2020, you know, the year from hell as many would have it, but it certainly has been bizarre and it continues in that vein. Donald Trump, a shabby and discredited figure, lingers on lying to himself and to his millions of devotees that he won an election that everyone else can see that he quite plainly lost. Australia's armed services worry about being subject to Japan's death penalty if convicted of serious crimes while stationed in that country under a plan unveiled last week, even as we learned in the same week that some members of Australia's most elite defence forces actually believe in delivering the death penalty to some people, uh, and it's a really shocking story that we saw come out of Afghanistan. And of course, the China relationship went from bad to worse, with the Morrison government showing no clue as to how to improve things in our national interest, the same national interest they endlessly invoke. And last week also, there was that really weird South Australian, what I'm calling mockdown rather than lockdown, but really it was a, a, an attempt to get on the front foot and deal with, uh, deal with the situation that that state faced, but it had to be aborted when it turned out that situation had been based on largely on a single lie from someone that they had uh, contacted through contact tracing. So it's just you know mind-boggling the way things are going this year. Nothing seems to be particularly predictable, and most of the stories are negative, although not all, of course. As I said, there has been a change in the White House, and that promises at least eventually a return to some sort of sanity. 
and it is still November, so there's a bit of time yet for this year. Joining me as usual on the podcast is the wonderful and newly researched Grant Levend, Dr. Maria Taflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations, as I said. Welcome back, Maria. Thank you, Mark. Yes, 2020 isn't isn't all bad, I suppose, but you know, what will December bring? Locusts. I predict locusts. <laughs> I think there have been some locusts on the horizon. I saw something about locusts. I think Brian Schmidt was making a point about locusts in some um, plague proportion somewhere in Victoria. Well, I regret saying that. Yeah. Um, I know the grass uh, is just absolutely insane around Canberra and uh, yes. I've discovered to my horror that I've got allergies that uh, or sensitivities that frankly I didn't really know I had. Um, and you know the pollen count is just absolutely berserk. In the circle across from where I live, the, uh, the, the what what passes for a council in the ACT, which is basically the ACT government, has had to um, come out, you know, with the tractors and and mow it, and they're doing it about every two weeks because you know if you don't, it's kind of six foot high. Well, not six foot, but oh, I, I fear our house will just be in, enveloped by the grass. Yeah. for one non vigilant weekend, and we'll never find our dog again. Well, I've got a Velcro dog, uh, which is a, a brand of uh, a dog. It's a schnauzer. But uh, when Vincent comes back from from his walk, that you know, I take him on each day. It's it's it literally is you know five ten minutes of just extracting all of these grass seeds out of him because it's it's just horrendous. Um, anyway, enough on dogs. Also with us is Quentin Grafton. And Quentin Grafton, of course, is an economist, but he's also chairholder of the UNESCO Chair in Water Economics and Transboundary Water Governance here at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Welcome back, Quentin. Thanks, Mark. A pleasure to be here. You've been on the podcast many times. And one of the reasons you're here today, and there's a number of things that, that we can talk to you about, but one of the key reasons is that you released some interesting research last week in partnership with University of Melbourne, I believe. Yes, that's right. I, I had two other co-authors and uh, we had a paper published in Royal Society Open Science. And that paper is what's called backcasting. So in other words, we take the number of fatalities through COVID, mm-hmm. let's say today, November 23rd, and we go back in time to work out uh, how many infections we would need to have had let's say three weeks ago, approximately, to be able to get the number of fatalities today. So that's what's called backcasting. So we go back in time to work out what those levels of infections were. And so, can- so if I could just stop you there. So essentially what we've been doing up until now is we're, we're detecting a certain number of infections through people coming forward and being tested. We know some of those people are, uh, develop symptoms and they end up, uh, if those symptoms become serious, they might end up in hospital and, and regrettably some of those don't survive. And so that's the that's essentially the the ballpark we understand up until that point. And what you're saying is you can actually now, with the value of experience of all this, you can look at the infection rates and extrapolate backwards how many people out there have been carrying the virus. Is that what you're you, you extrapolate from the fatality rates. So, so right. we have a distribution around the fatality rates. So we know it can't be less than a certain number and it's unlikely to be greater than another number. So those are the two endpoints. And then you take the number of deaths that you would have today, the number of fatalities due to COVID. And then you calculate based on those proportions, those probabilities associated with the, the you know, fatalities, it's, which is low, but still high <laughs> by comparison to, let's say, uh, influenza and a bunch of other diseases. Then you're able to calculate how many people got 
got infected uh, three or four weeks ago. And uh, so you, you not only need the fatality rates, but you also need to have some distribution around the time period it takes to get infected, to get symptoms, four to seven days. And then from symptoms to if you happen to pass away because of COVID, you know, it could be uh, 14 to 19 days. So, so you take those two, those three sets of parameters, you create distributions around them. And from that, you can create a, a measure of the true or the population infection rate, which is much higher than what you would get through the testing that we, you know, when you go to, I've been tested for mm. COVID, you go in there, you get the, the sputum sample, you get the saliva sample, like you get the result hopefully within 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And then they say, yeah, positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you're positive, you get a confirmed case. That's the number that you see in the John Hopkins websites yeah. or the World Health Organization. And those numbers are much, much less than what the actual or true population numbers. In some countries, it's very, very, very bad in the sense that detection rates through the testing of the RNA testing is what, what I'm talking about is very, very low. Some countries is, is pretty good, like South Korea is one of the best in the world. Australia was the best at the end of April in the 15 countries we sampled. So in some countries, it's uh, it's horrific how low the detection rate is. So United Kingdom, for example, you know, you've got a number of infections, uh, people who have been affected and have recovered or currently infected, approximately 16, that's one six, 16 times larger than the confirmed cases. Italy, it's about 17 times larger. That's a huge difference. It's not just a little difference, it's a huge difference. And it has big implications for how you manage the pandemic, has big implications for what you've been doing so far, as well as going forward, has big implications for people who, let's say, are vulnerable. If you're a vulnerable person, you have some morbidities, your high blood pressure, diabetes, a certain age, etc., and you live in London, England, you better be very careful because our results are suggesting to you that there's a much, much higher chance of getting COVID than you think by just looking at those uh, confirmed cases. It raises so many interesting questions. For example, does it mean that COVID is significantly more contagious than we thought? I mean, it seems if it's moving around the community uh, at, at, as you say, 15, 16 times the amount that we understand, then presumably all those messages about stay 1.5 metres apart and open a window and all those things, which is essentially predicated on the notion that um, being in in close in with you know someone's proximity uh, exposes you to you know droplets from their from their breathing and coughing and so forth but that also there's a an amount of time that it increases over you know the longer you're in that proximity the, the you know the, the more uh, risk you're at um, and what this suggests is that there's a lot of people picking it up and I don't want to sort of you know pick on the on the dude in South Australia who made up the story about having just bought a pizza but are there people picking it up from having just bought a pizza or the equivalent? I mean, that, that, well, that there's, could there's, be one conclusion. Well, there's, obviously, yeah, there's, there's lots of people who've picked up COVID mm. uh, globally, uh, and according to our numbers, much, much more than, than, than the confirmed cases would suggest. So, yes, it is highly contagious. We know certain things about the virus in terms of infections. So, so you need to get a certain viral load to, mm. to get infected. So you don't just have to get you – know, Yeah. Well, this is not something that people – you don't hear this said much. Yeah, so masks really clearly will help. If, yeah. if someone who's infected wearing a mask and you're wearing a mask, that will clearly help. Yeah, because there's, there's basically 
literally six layers of material between exactly. you and them. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and we know there's aerosol transmission, so that means outside the the virus will get dispersed, obviously, but that's not going to be true in a closed space in yeah, the environment. Right. So that's why it seems that we're getting the rates of infection going up, which they are. It's exploding, particularly in the northern hemisphere, in northern where hemisphere, they're right. entering in cold weather and cold people weather, are indoors. Exactly. Yeah. So going into a pub, for example, in the United Kingdom mm. uh, is not <laughs> not a, a good idea. Obviously now restrictions have been placed since mm. November 5th in the United Kingdom. But go doing that sort of activity, you know, large, relatively large number of people around, not, not wearing masks, uh, talking loudly, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, that's a, a classic place to to be picking up uh, COVID or public transportation, for example. Well, yeah, I mean, you can anyone can, you know, remember even either doing it or seeing pictures of London buses with the windows fogged up, you know, all people inside because it's so cold outside and, uh, you know, packed full of people that's – and that's the way people get around in London. They get around on the tube or on the exactly. bus. Exactly. So this is where wearing masks is critically important. So there, are, you know, there are cultural differences in different places. So some places in, in Asia, for example, where wearing masks is perfectly acceptable and pretty much everyone does it. And in fact, if you don't wear a mask, it's, it's socially unacceptable. Yeah. So that does help. It doesn't guarantee, of course, but it does help if everyone's wearing a mask on public transportation, for example. To be clear, though, um, what you're sort of saying is, is that you know, this is a comparative study based on data from April, yeah? Uh, April, uh, we, our latest numbers were from the end of August. Okay, okay. So I have, I have two questions. Uh, the first one is, I guess, like what you're really saying is is that some of these gaps, like the really big ones are sort of showing, um, I guess, a deficiency in, in countries' testing regimes. And I imagine that South Korea, the gap between what they – what they actually find in their actual N and um, what you're forecasting would be much smaller. That's right. So that detection rate is much better in the South Korea. Uh, yeah. That's that's what we'd be finding. And what you also said as well, Maria, there is a relationship between the the proportion of people testing positive through the RNA test, you know, the saliva sputin test, uh, and the detection rate. It's a negative relationship. So your high positivity rate in those RNA tests – then the, the the worse your detection rate, uh, so we can we can identify that way, and we've got a consistent negative correlation both at the end of April and at the end of August. So that's let's, another let's way of testing. Let's unpack that a bit. The higher uh, a higher infection rate than the lower detection rate. Detection rate. Yeah. So so if you get a hundred people going into the facility to get tested, you know, through the RNA type test that we're familiar with, you know, and uh, the higher the proportion, let's say it's five or ten out of a hundred, that's that would be. That would be pretty high. Be high yeah. Okay, uh, high positivity rate is what that would be. Then that would mean that you've got a lower rate of detection of the overall uh, community. So not enough people are, are going forward to Correct. be tested or perhaps in the case of the UK, especially in the early months, people simply weren't allowed to get a test because there weren't enough of them. Yeah, that's right. And there was that whole thing about you had to really convince them. And, and in fact, uh, my wife and I went uh, to the testing station. I think I've spoken about this before on, on this pod, but we went to a testing station in Canberra at one stage and because she ha had uh, you know a bad cold sort of situation or at least you know throat symptoms and so forth and we so we figured well you know we will both get tested and as soon as uh, I answered the question that I didn't have any symptoms they told me you know step away from the counter sir you know uh, we're not you're not getting a test and I said yeah but if she's positive right I mean <laughs> we live together for Christ's sake so if she's positive then presumably so am I whereas we leave that test, we don't know for 48 hours, I don't 
I haven't been tested. I don't have any sort of restrictions on me. It just seems cockamamie, really, to 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 run it like that. But that was the case all around because of rationing. I suppose yeah, rationing really. Um, they couldn't they couldn't provide enough tests, and so you really had to convince them that you had symptoms. I, I had a colleague who who actually his breathing became so bad that um, I think a friend of his called an ambulance. They put him on oxygen. His oxygen levels weren't sufficiently bad for him to be admitted. And they left him and he never got a test, right? You know, and so that gives you a sort of sense of the sort of public policy kind of uh, fiasco. And he, he contracted that disease at a conference in the COVID. He contracted COVID in the, in the United States. My, my second question, Quentin, is. Well, we had Bevan Shields on the, on the pod talking about his experience and, and it was pretty much the same as you just described. I mean, he had the yeah. ambulance come. This was in the early stages of, of the uh, disease progress in, in London. Um, and they basically convinced him. That was at the same time Boris Johnson was actually in the hospital. And they basically said to him, look, <laughs> I mean, it's a slightly different detail, but they said, look, unless you really demand to be taken to the hospital, I wouldn't if I were you because you just can end up on a gurney in a, in a corridor somewhere and you really don't want to be there. There's a lot of sick people there. That does not fill you with confidence. No. My second question is, is um, you know, and this may be beyond the scope of the of the paper, but I'm I'm interested, which is we know that um, doctors have gotten better at treating this disease, and so have you been able to sort of account for that in this in this paper as well? Yeah, the fatality rates uh, appear to be um, uh, dropping uh, for a variety of reasons, and but not only from the these um, some drugs that are, that are being applied, but but also in terms of how quickly people have been putting on the put on the ventilators there's some delay etc so that's good no so if there's a change in the fatality rate the substantial change then our backcasting method will have a bias towards it another critique of our method is the demographics so if the uh, if you're comparing countries which have very different demographics so a country that has a much younger population for example uh, with another country that has a much older population that's not a useful comparison simply because the uh, fatality rates are so much more uh, in the older population so so there yeah. are, there are certainly caveats which we're very clear about in our published paper to, to talk through that and, and say that there are weaknesses but those weaknesses of course in the confirmed cases, there's also weaknesses in seroprevalence studies. So that's another way of testing is, is that you actually take blood samples and you work out whether they have antibodies or not. So if Maria's friend didn't get tested for COVID, that person could still get tested uh, with a seropositive test to determine whether they have antibodies, uh, whether they in fact did have COVID at some time in the mm. past. So we have been able to make comparisons with those sero studies, those blood sample studies with ours where it's possible and we get similar sorts of numbers. So, uh, oh, that's we're, interesting. so, so we're, we're pretty effectively verifies the result. Pretty, by another pretty, method. pretty much. So, yeah. so I think the key point is, is not whether it's 16 times more or 17 times no. more in the United Kingdom. That's not really what we're talking about. We're just saying it's multiples more in the United Kingdom than is uh, given out by the UK government statistics or the John Hopkins or the WHO. And that has serious implications, I think, for how we manage the pandemic in those sorts of countries and other countries with South Korea and Australia, by the way, 
was the best at the end of April. It, it was number five in our sample at the end of August. But remember, if we you know, it's not ancient history, but remember at the end of August, we had Victoria. So Victoria's lockdown gets underway second and then also the 5th of August. So there was still a large number of cases at that time. So, so our detection rate was not so good at that point, mm. simply because there was actually substantial hidden transmission. Now our detection rate, I would imagine, is much, much higher and certainly verified in the numbers of thousands of people who are tested in South Australia. There are lots of people being tested regularly in New South Wales, and we're getting very, very, very low numbers. Uh, so it would, it would suggest that we're de- our detection rate is much, much better than it was, let's say, at the end of August. And it does raise important implications, just as you, as you say, Quinton, because I think that the number that people are actually focusing on um, when they're listening to the news is the one that is reported, which is zero cases and zero deaths. And so if you hear zero cases and zero deaths, well, maybe you'll like be a bit more complacent and not use the hand sanitizer station and, and all of those things. And perhaps it doesn't matter so much in a, in a country like Australia, given that we seem to be pursuing an elimination strategy, but it might matter a lot more. If um, you live in, um, you know, Europe where they can't police um, borders. Um, and I guess the final thing I would sort of say about this is um, what has been really nice about this discussion is like these are the, exactly the kinds of things we need to sort of think about when we when we hear data or data produced, which we do all the time, right, particularly in the economic sphere, these kinds of, you know, like that was, I guess, one of the core uh, complaints or, or, or kind of uh, – uh, conflicts about whether or not the Victorian response to the the virus was the appropriate one and the treasurer sort of raised the point about, well, what is the appropriate comparison? Is it between Europe and Australia or is it between um, Australia and the other states? And the actual correct – Victoria and the other states, yeah. Yeah, Victoria and the other Australian states. And the the actual correct answer is, well, what is the question, right? So so if it is about when uh, you have certain numbers in uh, infection rates, then, you know, the the appropriate comparison for Victoria is with – with Europe, but if you're perhaps going from the beginning of the compa- of the pandemic, then perhaps the appropriate comparison is um, the other Australian states. And uh, I think the this the this is how we are manipulated, folks. So pay attention. Yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting point because you know it's, it strikes me about that whole you know febrile Victorian debate was 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 really it was really skewed because people either wanted to conflate the the two things that is the failure of hotel quarantine and what happened next as if it was all part of the same problem when in fact the second part of it was the solution to the first part and then there was the whole debate you know allied to that which was around Victoria's ability to you know do contact tracing um, contact testing and or testing and contact tracing um, you know which was uh, came in for a lot of criticism. But the lockdown itself, and we shouldn't pretend that it didn't come at a huge cost to the economy and at a huge social and personal cost for a lot of people, and that cost will continue. But nonetheless, when you are faced with the sort of numbers that they were faced with in terms of new infections and fatalities, particularly ripping through the aged care sector, then quite dramatic means are called for. Uh, so the idea that you can make a comparison between two jurisdictions, say Victoria and WA or Victoria and South Australia or New South Wales, when they've got, you know, in the case of New South Wales, they had double digit only and low double digits at that for, for, for a good part of that time or, or in single figures. And those other jurisdictions, no new infections, that's not a valid comparison because they had 
vast numbers of infections, new infections happening in Victoria. And the question is, what do you do when you have vast number of infections? Do you do what is being done in the UK? I would say no. Or what's being done in, in, in the USA? Clearly no, because we know where this all leads. And we can talk about that. I mean, what are the numbers at the moment? 55 million infections globally. Um, I think there's one, 1.3 billion deaths in the US. 12, 12.3 million infections, 256,000 deaths as of today. I mean, is that the kind of thing? They're, they're getting 2,000 deaths every 24 hours. Yeah, I, I think, I think this is the point, right? Like, the, the reason why a pandemic might, um, go out of control is actually, um, has has potentially multiple mechanisms, right? Um, so multiple factors that may see it sort of take off uh, and become out of control. And you don't necessarily always need the same mechanisms to trigger uh, this point, which is sort of what you were sort of saying in relation to the fact that there are problems with hotel quarantine are conflated with the overall number of cases. But, you know, it seems to be that there are other problems in place, such as the fact that contact tracing wasn't up to the, the task, for but example. But contact tracing becomes much harder when it gets overwhelmed, right? Well, I think this is the key Precisely. point. So, so, so there's studies done in terms of the sort of number of contacts you'll have for someone who tests positive. It's approximately 36, okay, but let's say it's over 30. Some some people, of course, it's well over 100. So you're so, saying for someone who, who tests positive? You, you need, you, you, on average, you're over 30 contacts have to be traced, and they have to be traced within 48 hours. So you just do the math on this. Mm. If you're starting to get 30 new cases a day, yeah. okay, okay, 900 contacts have to be done in 48 hours. Yeah. You need many, many contact tracers who are qualified, able to do that and do that at a very short notice. Okay, so these people aren't going to be out there just waiting in the empty offices. They have to be presumably doing something, mm. so then they have to transfer the activities. Mm. So in a country like Australia, once you start to get more than 30 cases per day, new cases, you start to lose control. When you hit 100, we've lost control. Mm. And Victoria's numbers, okay, were well over. Well, yeah, they went up to 680, yeah. okay, so yeah. just before they put in the, the stage four lockdown. So what's happening in, in Western Europe, what's happening in the United States, contact tracing, I'm not, I'm not against it. Of course, it's part of the mix here, but it's not going to work when you're having thousands and thousands, 40-odd 40, 40 thousand in France. Yeah. I mean, give me a break. I mean, there's no way you can do that effectively. So the whole system is broken down. So the only option, if you want to suppress infection at that point, there is only one option, and that is social distancing in various types and measures, and that need to be set up in an appropriate way, et cetera, et cetera. But it's basically making sure that the, the contacts that people have are limited, especially inside, and you can do it multiple ways. And we know how we did it in Melbourne, and it was highly successful. Okay, so we know it works. It's not just in Melbourne. We, we know it worked in Wuhan. We know it worked in New Zealand. We know it worked in a bunch of jurisdictions. So we know it works. The question is, what is the objective? In the context of, of Australia, it has been by default a community elimination of the virus. Explicitly in New Zealand, it was. In Western Europe, that was never the case. Mm. That was all about avoiding hospitals reaching a certain threshold point, in particular the intensive care units. So they made a call on that. They thought they made the right call. And in summer, you could read a, a bunch of people 
uh, however you want to call them, columnists, yeah, yeah, <laughs> who were writing and saying, look at the Europe model. This is the, that worked. You know, we got numbers down to a few hundred. But even at that point, anyone who's worked at this area will, would, would have worked out once you're getting several hundred cases a day, which they were in the large Europe, Western European countries, they were setting themselves up for what is happening mm-hmm. right now because their contact tracing system is unlikely to be sufficient with less stringent social distancing to be able to manage and control the infections. And clearly that's what's happened. So it should have come as no surprise that we are experiencing what we are experiencing in the United, in the United Kingdom and Western Europe. And unfortunately, when you set up these lockdowns, so-called lockdowns, they have to be in for a sufficiently long enough period of time. So if it's four weeks, which appears to be what the UK is heading for, it's not going to be enough. And so what it means is you get the, the, the flattening of the curve, but you'll still have sufficient large enough numbers and they will come back up. Because Especially, it's exponential. Yeah, because it's exponential also because of what your research shows, which is there's a lot of latent infection that hasn't been detected and which you know can, can and bubble up in uh, multiple ways. Let's take a very quick break and back in a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, uh, just before the break, we were talking about COVID and infection rates and the different ways it's being handled. Bevan Shields, who I mentioned earlier, um, who's the, uh, the Fairfax or what's now called Nine Newspapers uh, correspondent for Europe um, and has been on this podcast a few times, a uh, good old colleague of mine, uh, he's tweeted uh, that Britain is abandoned, this is a, a quoting him, Britain is abandoning a key measure to control the virus. The UK Daily Telegraph is reporting that Boris Johnson will announce tomorrow, that is today, our time, I suppose, that contacts of positive cases will no longer have to self-isolate for 14 days. This is a huge change, but compliance has been low anyway. So in other words, <laughs> you know, it wasn't really working. People aren't taking this seriously, so we're going to abandon it. And this, it, you know, this goes uh, to your, the point you were just making, uh, Quentin, about about um, you know the political will, I suppose, to to see these things through. Uh, the the government in the UK, and this is the case, been the case as we know with with Trump's administration in the US, it's far more of an eye to the politics all the time than to the health thing. I mean, is that is that a, just an admission that it's well out of beyond their control anyway now? And if they impose harsh measures, they carry all the political downside and they still can't really get this thing under control. Well, the politics is one thing and I can talk to that, but uh, we certainly know that they can get this under control. It's not mission impossible. Even from where they are? Absolutely, it's possible. China's demonstrated, we've demonstrated, other countries have demonstrated, but it requires 
consistency in messaging. It requires social distancing. There's several orders of magnitude beyond even the worst it's certainly, situation. Yeah, but it, it, it's it's simply about uh, yes, of course, it, it, it's going to be a problem. I'm not suggesting it's the, but we're talking, you know, an eight week type of social distancing lockdown, however you want to call it, will make a huge difference. Now, the issue for the for Western Europe, they made decisions around their borders. Now, if you bring your numbers way down, okay, very low numbers, let's say, in the United Kingdom or France, or whatever, you have to do something about your border control. Mm. Because if you bring your numbers down and other countries haven't, mm. and they're bringing in, they're coming in, they're traveling by air or train or whatever it is, then you're going to get back to the way you were. So you have to have some method of control around that. Now, we know that's problematic, even in Australia, not just in Victoria. We know in South Australia, we know in New South Wales, mm -hmm. there, are, in fact, have been outbreaks that came out of the hotel quarantine. Now, fortunately, in other jurisdictions, they've managed to get stop that getting into the big big outbreak or so-called second wave. But there are clear clear issues associated with that. People coming back to Australia, the probability, the positivity rates of those people coming in, it's about two to three percent. Okay, so six thousand people coming yeah. in a week. You know, so so in other words, if we don't have fourteen day quarantine and appropriate testing of them, plus of course the people working in those hotels or facilities, then of course we are going to get COVID again and again and again. So that's the whole point of it. You have to have border control. You have to have contact tra 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 uh, tracing and testing, and as necessary, certainly as a you you you, you if, if you've got very low numbers or zero numbers as we have at most places in in, in Australia right now, uh, then you uh, you don't need to have those hard stringent social distancing measures. But when you have those numbers, when the outbreak is starting, let's say it escapes from quarantine as it had in, in in South Australia just just a few days ago or a little over a couple of weeks. Well, I don't know exact 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 date it came out. Well, those sorts of those sorts of measures need to be quick, they need to be fast, they need to be hard, because the payoff is that you only have to have them in for a relatively short mm. period of time. Because when you have the large sets of numbers, then you're into a whole different sort of six-week, eight-week well, situation. And we, we saw exactly what happens when you have the large sets of numbers. You have a four-month lockdown. That's right. And Maria, that was essentially what was driving the South Australian government's snap lockdown, wasn't it? The, the, that logic that you, if you can act very, very quickly right at the start, uh, you don't have to act for anywhere near as long. Yes, and I mean, like, I mean, there's been a lot of, uh, I guess, criticism of um, what's happened in South Australia because it's become apparent that um, a, 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 an individual who is on a temporary work visa uh, misled a contact tracer about the fact that they worked at a pizzeria, which kind of goes to some policy choices made at the federal level around um, the economic support for vulnerable people in our community. Um, but, you know, based on the available information the South Australian government had, not really understanding the full parameters of exactly how many potential cases were out there in the community. And, you know, they also sort of believed that this was a much more infectious strain of the virus. Um, the precautionary principle was, was you know, the, the right one. Um, and what we, I guess, don't know is, uh, effectively is what the confidence the South Australian government had in its capacity to contact trace at these potentially high numbers. And uh, the, the downside risk is to end up in a four-month lockdown, which we have seen. We, we you know, the sort of um, psychological and economic devastation of that, and that will only become more clear to us um, in time. And I, I think it is a bit disappointing that the, 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 the Premier himself is effectively undermining 
um, I guess, the sort of sagacity of his own judgment by castigating um, this dude for for lying, which yeah is is a problem. But um, you know, if they're, I think they're going to punish him quite severely now, and unfortunately, we, we just sort of know from psychology that this is going to not this is not going to help people not lie to people to contract traces in the future right like it's actually an exercise in building trust and it would be better I think if Stephen Marshall sort of praised his community for responding in the way that they in the way that they did and you know basically well let's look at look let's look at how we ask people questions to encourage them to be truthful rather than you know, creating a situation where they're fearful. Yeah, and don't put the them truth. in a situation where it's where there's an incentive for them to lie. To, yeah, to deceive yeah. because essentially they have no choice. There's no social support network, no you know welfare safety net for them in that circumstance. There's a lot of people, as we know, in the economy uh, who are in this kind of precariat as it's described nowadays. You know, who, who's who's exactly whose hold in the labour market is um, is very temporary or precarious and um, and who are needing to have more than one job. This was a problem, of course, in Victoria in the aged care sector as well where we found that there were people working in aged care in multiple or at least more than one uh, aged care facility. Well, anyone who's had anything to do with those facilities knows that these people are the lifeblood of the system. They, they uh, absolutely keep the aged care sector going and, um, and they're very poorly remunerated for that. And it's not surprising that people are needing to work more than one job in order to, uh, in order to meet the costs of living. Just on Victoria though, uh, and I just want to make this point because I think it's an interesting one from a, and I'll be interested in your responses to this, but even if you accept the hotel quarantine stuff up, um, that led to it, can you actually think of a single public policy lever that you've seen pulled? That has been so effective. I mean, we've, I think it's 24 days or 21 days, some sort of number like that now of zero, zero, no new infections and no deaths in Victoria from, I think it peaked at 725 new infections at one point, um, in a single day. Uh, it was, uh, you know, and of course, something like 800 of the 900 deaths in Australia are from Victoria and, uh, it worked. I mean, the mod, you know, you, you've been doing modeling, Quentin. The modeling that they were talking about and the sort of timeline they were predicting for bringing this down to an acceptable number and zero is a very acceptable number in this regard. Um, it worked. I mean, it did. We did modeling in, in Victoria. In fact, we, our model, I mean, I'm not trying to boast or anything, but our model was very close to what's actually happened. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, 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 but that indicates that the compliance rate was high and that once stage four was implemented, second or fifth of August, it worked and it clearly worked. And the point about it is that in July, when they had the stage three lockdown, it wasn't working in the sense that the rates of growth were still positive. It reduced the, 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 the rate of increase, but it was still positive. So we had to go to stage four. There was no alternative. If we'd gone earlier, it would have been better, but that's the nature of the, the decision making at the time but the point about it is is that it did work and in the context of South Australia or indeed any jurisdiction the earlier you go in the harder you go in the shorter the period is required because when you have exponential growth every day you wait means it, it can yeah, blow up yeah. and also in the context of contact tracing I pointed out that you know if it's 30 plus a day 
new cases, you start to lose control. So the so you want to you want to get in there as quickly as you can and do something, and 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 that's the that's the payoff. And in the context of the Victorian economy, we again did modelling. We looked the counterfactual, and Maria made the point. Well, what is the question that you should yeah, be asking? Yeah, well, the counterfactual is what was the alternative if they hadn't. Victorian government had not instituted a stage four and a second and a fifth of August. Well, what the alternative was would have been many more thousands of deaths. There would have been many thousands of deaths. And there would have been a huge impact on the economy. And so we've done those. And Victoria no- would have been walled off to the rest of the of country completely for, for, indefinitely. For indefinitely. So so we've got numbers there in the in the in the vicinity, depending on the the the, the scenario you want to construct, the counterfactual. You know, minimum you know, hundred and thirty, but upwards to two to three hundred billion dollars just for the Victorian economy. By comparison, the cost of the lockdown is somewhere between twenty to thirty billion. Not I'm not trivializing, that's a very large sum. But the it's multiples more if you had kept at stage three and rather than going to stage four. So those are the those are the fix, facts and figures you need to look at. It's not just a public health benefit. Of course it's a bit like that, but it's also an economy benefit. And you'll see it in the United Kingdom. I can make a prediction right now. The United Kingdom's economy is in the toilet it is and it's going to go worse simply because, and excuse the language, they've done a clusterfuck in the context of how they have responded to COVID from the very top. And in fact, I'm going to make a suggestion. I'm going to write to Netflix tonight and say, <laughs> create a new series rather than have The Crown, create a new series called The Clown. <laughs> and, and you can imagine who, who that person could be uh, in the lead role and in, in his family. Does he look like he cut his hair with bacon scissors? <laughs> so, so, I mean... The point about it is politicians, leaders need to be accountable for the decisions that they've made. And they have received expert advice in the context of the United Kingdom. I'm just, I, there are other countries. I don't want to just hit on the UK, but they did receive advice on the 21st of September. SAGE, this is this advisory committee of senior. Uh, advisors, you know, government emergencies. They mm. provided that mm. advice, written advice to go in and go hard at that, that time, 21st of September. It took until the 5th of November. And you can just add up, it wouldn't be hard to do, you could add up the consequences in terms of deaths in the United Kingdom from that decision making. Not only is it increased deaths, morbidities, and there are morbidities associated with COVID, maybe 10% of people have long-term issues associated once they've recovered from COVID. And then there's the economy side. The the supposed idea is that you get this better economy. Well, one of the worst countries in the world in terms of its economy, in terms of COVID, will the United Kingdom, and there well, will be other countries. Well, speaking included. of clown, the clown, there's plenty of clowns around who who completely miss that argument that you've just put. Uh, who who seem to be suggesting in everything they say in criticising Victoria or South Australia or anywhere else that um, that if you you just got we just got to learn to live with the virus. That uh, you know it's perfectly fine. You can do it, and your economy can continue on largely untrammeled by. Well, that is the principal debate in the United Kingdom, and that's one of the reasons why I imagine compliance is a lot lower there because there has been those inconsistencies. I mean, I think what the Victorian case seems to sort of demonstrate, if we use um, the rest of Australia as a as a comparator, um, and you know, I'm I'm really looking forward to whoever actually studies this in in great depth, is that there were obviously clear like. government infrastructure problems in the way the Victorian Health Department and its capacity for contact tracing was set up. And it, it is actually quite possible that 
Victoria's situation might mimic the rest of the country except for New South Wales because ultimately they've been able to shut their borders and pretty much have zero transmission for a very long time. Um, but that seems to be one of the reasons why, uh, you know, the, the dam sort of managed to crack beyond the point where patching it up, I suppose, would sort of save the situation, i.e. contact um, tracing. And, and that that is actually quite... Um, important to actually unpick what it was about Victoria that um, set it off on this pathway because the reality is is that you cannot make um, hotel quarantine 100% um, safe just like you can't in hospitals. Like there's a reason why health professionals who are trained in PPE you know, still get sick. Yeah. Um, it's because they're just they're surrounded by it and they're getting like high viral um, Load. loads, right? And so, you know, I think, and and this is actually critically kind of important for how we sort of manage um, these kinds of complex policy problems. And that's sort of what I was getting at when I say that there's actually more than one mechanism at play as to why we get these these problems. And if you do not have good information, if you really don't know the the, the portion of your unknown, then yeah, a lockdown is absolutely the better reaction early and quickly before it gets out of um, control. New South Wales seems to be in a different situation. They seem to have a much better grip on what the actual problem is set mm, is mm. that they're facing. Yeah, well, they were definitely that, worried in South Australia, weren't they? Because they had 4,000 people in quarantine. Exactly. You know, within, within hours of uh, identifying this primary infection. Uh, they had, they, they, they'd identified, I think it was 4,000, which is a huge number of people that they'd essentially ordered into self-isolation anyway. Um, and that was also an abundance of caution, but for the right reasons. Uh, just before we leave this, because I want to just get on to talking about climate change briefly before we go, but um, just before we leave this, um, Maria, just thinking about this in terms of, I guess, you know, you, you were using that term compliance before um, or, or, you know, the public level of buy-in for, for this. Um, is there a danger now, given that South Australia's had this kind of misstep, or has it certainly been the way it's been portrayed? And it, and it is a misstep in the sense that, as you say, that the Premier himself has, has, has sort of walked away from it, and they did cut what was already a very short, sharp lockdown. They did cut it in half. Um, so it was a pretty strong admission that the premise on, under which they'd made the decision had had changed, and they decided to you know pull out of... The, the full lockdown in the way that they had it. Is there a danger now that they'll be more reluctant to do it again if faced with another circumstance? And, and also that South Australians and indeed citizens in other parts of the country will be less inclined to take at face value such immediate sort of fiat from, from governments? I think the short answer is yes, but I actually think that the government has an awful lot of agency in um, ameliorating that, you know, I mean, if they sort of are, if they front up and sort of explain the chain of reasoning as to why it is they made that decision, then that actually might boost hmm. public confidence that ultimately, you know, given the information available, this was the choice they they sort of made because that's ultimately the decision that 
they have to make. They can't, they can't, they don't have perfect information. And that's the, the reality that policymakers face, despite the fact that we rarely like to talk about it in those, in those terms. I, th- I think the final thing I would sort of say on, on lockdowns is if we sort of take like a deep history uh, perspective and we look at pandemics and viruses and, 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 and death across time and space, across human history, um, you know, before the age of vaccines, the only thing that has ever worked is when communities have collectively decided to protect each other by isolating themselves. Mm. That is the only thing that has ended any of these um, waves of um, disease with the absolute exception of um, strains of the Black Death that was so virulent that the, the disease killed itself by killing everyone um, that it came into, into contact with. Yeah, exactly. And so and so, I guess that's sort of the, the point. Like, yeah, this is absolutely about trade-offs. It's about making decisions with imperfect um, information. Um, but some of these, these you know, like the, the things that go into the trade-off are not actually weighed um, equally. And it would be good if we had a bit more of a sophisticated discussion about what these trade-offs actually kind of were rather than sort of talking in these sort of False binaries, which is, I think, where the yeah. debate sort of sits. Yeah. Well, it's worth highlighting in South Australia. There are 26 active cases of COVID from community transmission right now in South yeah, Australia. Yeah. So it's the, this is not a make-up fantasy world. There no. are 26. No, that's right. And we know that this is highly infectious. And the, because we don't have social distancing goods in a stringent level anymore, but uh, simply they, because we have so few cases, um, then, of course, it, the, the so-called R- value will be, will be high. So it can transmit itself very quickly and increase rapidly. And indeed, Maria's point in terms of Victoria, there was substantial hidden transmission in June and July. So you go and contact Trace and you ask questions of people, but those people don't truthfully provide the context they've been in, in connection with. Why? Because if they provide the names to the contact traces, then those people won't be able to go and work because they will need to get tested and the protocol is that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that you need to wait till your test result. So they changed that in terms of the incentive. They gave a $450 payment to workers who got tested even though they, they weren't found to be positive. Yeah, or, that was the Victorian government, wasn't that it? That was yeah. the Victorian government. So so there's a whole incentive issue here, but but going going hard, going quickly in the South Australia, you know, if we if they I think looks like they've got on top of it, that is the the right call. So the, these people Should go, they have stuck with the six days then, do you think? Rather than sort well, of I mean this. if it works for three days, that's fine. But the point is it's not some make believe thing that, mm. that someone uh, uh, working in a pizza joint made up some story in the context that there were twenty six active cases that that's a fact so that was the point and the south australian no doubt the health officials who made those calls and that advice were well aware that there was a substantial hidden transmission in melbourne and that's what ultimately led them down that that path it got out of control so going quickly and they didn't know but keep in mind the testing really got underway in monday okay that's a week ago so until they did all that testing okay they didn't really know how widespread this was so even that so that information has come in in the last few days which has made a difference of course in terms of the call so it's always yes you make a decision but it should always be flexible and adaptable based on what the data tells you if they got 10 more new cases today in 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 South Australia, then I think they'll be making a different call. So it's all based on the actual data, the current data, and then make your the, the decision based on that. Yes, it's a fascinating area, and we, you know, every all governments and and populations are kind of learning on the job. And uh, we, you know, to go back to Maria's point about comparators. 
we can certainly compare Australia with uh, most of the rest of the world and say, uh, we, you know, we're doing it pretty well here. We've been very lucky as well, I think it's fair to say. We've been lucky in a lot of ways, um, even on climate, you might say, because, um, and that's what I want to just turn to next before we, before we have to go. But, um, we've got obviously a Biden White House now, or we will have, supposedly. I mean, Donald Trump doesn't believe it. And some of the, frankly, bizarre people that he's had speaking for him, his lawyers, have been saying some, you know, amazing things about how they won in a landslide. They continue to cling to that. But nonetheless, Joe Biden is going to take uh, the US back into the Paris Climate Accords. Australia remains committed to that. Um, and we've seen a bit of a shimmy from the Prime Minister in, in recent days. Perhaps, I don't know, what do you think about this, Quentin? Is, there, is Australia now, is that going to lift the pressure on Australia uh, in terms of its climate profile, its its position in the world, is that already starting to show up in some of uh, the Prime Minister's language? I know he told a business group last week that he was reasonably confident Australia wouldn't have to use its uh, its Kyoto carryover credits. Well, I would think there would be a change because uh, without the United States on side and so to speak in terms of taking a sort of a, a different perspective than most countries or which countries are taking in terms of climate change mitigation, then I think Australia is going to be very much isolated. So being in the uh, connected to uh, in the club of with Saudi Arabia and Australia probably won't look so good for us. And there's already substantial pressure. We I think I understand that there's been substantial pressure from Western Europe, from France, for example, in the context of Australia needs to sort of step up, especially in terms of the credits, uh, the carryover credits you're talking about. So that pressure already was there. Now with the United States, with President Biden coming in, and uh, we have a different world, I think. So I, I think Australia is going to have to deliver more to avoid the sorts of potential consequences that might come its way in terms of who knows what that might be in terms of the consequences of trade or some sort of tariff regimes, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think the smart move is to move, not only from a political perspective, but of course it's the smart move for, for our planet and for our country. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. let's hope that happens and let's hope that right decisions are made uh, uh, in this current term of government. Maria, do you reckon that this will happen in a way, I mean, just sort of, you know, we all just sit here uh, watching uh, watching governments and watching, trying to understand Scott Morrison as a still relatively new prime minister. He seems unlikely to be the sort of person who does, you know, full back downs, but at the same time, he's very pragmatic. You know, he's 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 reading, reading the way he can manipulate uh, issues or the position of the government uh, to the government's advantage. Do you think there's any chance that he will adopt a net zero 2050 target or will he do things which he can convincingly say materially add up to that without actually ever mentioning the number? I think he'll, he'll do the, the latter. And, and I guess one way to sort of think about this is the way we have talked about climate change in this country has been all about downside risks, right? Like um, cost to the economy, cost to jobs. And the coalition has been extremely effective at uh, marshalling anxiety about um, the downside risks, uh, which is effectively obscured um, any of the sort of uh, comparative advantage that Australia in particular could capture as a result of like having endless sun and wind, basically. But what is kind of, I guess, interesting is that, yeah, I mean, the Prime Minister's already kind a crab walking out of this position because that equation around what is the actual risk is clearly sort of shifting. We saw that with the bushfires mm. and floods and 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 all of that kind of stuff. But but we can actually sort of see that it's not just 
actors like the United States that is that is moving. I do think this is significant because it's removing another kind of the the main pillar that the coalition has used, which is, well, it's good for the economy and, you know, whilst the United States and China are polluting, like it doesn't make a difference and China has committed and the United States will recommit to Paris. And so that that argument is kind of sliding away. But also like we see other actors moving, right? Um, the New South Wales state government, that's a liberal government from his own state, you know, um, with a with the treasurer that is from the, the right faction uh, that is moving in the direction of, of acting on um, uh, climate change. You know, business has been lobbying this government for a really long time. All the peak business bodies are for Pre- zero precisely. and 50. Yeah, business yeah. Council of Australia you know, has been giving that advice. I yeah. Mean, the, devi- the divestment move- the movement in by superannuation funds and, and, and shareholders, like you and know, banks, basically. and banks, banks like they, they won't feet. fund these projects anymore. Like it's pretty clear which way the, the wind is blowing. I mean, the, the, I think the reason why he hasn't moved hard, like more explicitly and won't is because the recalcitrants are in his party room. Well, there's a few recalcitrants on the Labor side yeah. as well. Yes, which which are only helping him, I think. You know, oh, yeah, um, that, these people are serving it up to him, really. That's right, that's right. You know. But there is a legitimate problem, and I've written about this in the uh, conversation today, and I therefore direct listeners to that if uh, if they want to have a look at that. But I'm making the point there that you know th- there's effectively two Australias here, right? I mean, and this is Labor's problem. There, Joel Fitzgibbon makes the point there are a lot of uh, people who work in the coal and energy sector uh, up and down the east coast of Australia uh, who traditionally are Labor bedrock sort of supporters but who no longer see the Labor Party as their party because they see the, they say Labor's been captured by the inner cities, uh, you know, by elite opinion and that, uh, you know, th- their jobs are the jobs that are going to go. So what is the solution? I mean, this is what Anthony Albanese must now manage. Uh, he may be only 12 months from an election and he needs to find a way of talking to these two Australias if he's going to retain those seats. And also if he is going to look like, um, if, if Labor is going to look like the party that it has traditionally, traditionally been, which is the party of working people, right? So, uh, I mean, I've proposed that, the, that one way they could do that is they should have a, an enormous, and I mean like deliberately enormous sort of future fund, a transition future fund, which would be as dramatic as paying um, coal workers displaced by a change, paying them to 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 uh, transition into other industries, perhaps even going as far as buying their houses. If houses, because you know local economies collapse, you suddenly owe the bank more for your house than the house is worth because the the smelter has uh, closed down or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm wondering whether that isn't the way to go about this, to say to uh, effectively to these communities but also to the broader nation that driving down emissions and having a greener economy is a national project and there is no reason that just because you happen to be caught in the hinge point of that of that change that you should carry the cost of it. Um, we should all carry the cost of it. So... Um, what do you think of that kind of idea, Quinn? Look, we have a long history of uh, restructuring in Australia where there is some change that happens and we can talk to dairy industry, we can talk to sugar, we can talk to uh, timber, you know, so – and. Typically, there's money put on the table to try and assist compensation, as you will, or some some assistance for the losers. So that's I, I think it's consistent with that 
that approach. The question is, is um, you know, who how, who are the losers and how do we determine it and what is the size of the sum and what are they going to get? Because there'll be a lot of people who aren't doing so well at the moment who are not in the mining community, uh, COVID, for example, uh, and uh, they might be saying, well, hang on, how about us? You know, so so that's always the challenge when you have these sorts of sorts of funds. But but in principle, the idea that there are losers from a public decision making that is in the national or the public interest need to be assisted is perfectly fine with me. Uh, I would point out, though, that there's lots of other losers uh, in the world, uh, including in Australia, who in, losers in the sense that uh, they're not doing well uh, through no fault of their own, just through where they happen to be living in a remote community, for example, that those sorts of people shouldn't be forgotten either in the so-called future fund. So I, and I think the, 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 the other thing I'd put to, to this as well. Um, we also have a problem in, in this country, and it's not unique to Australia, is that when you create these funds, you get uh, what I would call the, the vested interest coming in, uh, swooping in to see how they can spend this money and reallocate yeah. that money for themselves. And I can talk about to the water space, for example. You know, billions yeah, well, of dollars yeah. have been spent that should have gone into helping communities, and in fact, has gone into a bunch of concrete and a bunch of pipes to help just a, a very small number of, of yeah, it's not, it's, so, yeah. so we have to be very cognizant that there's the, the the possibility of gaming this, especially if it's a very large fund, is, is very, very high. So we'd have to set up the probity and all that sort of stuff behind it if it's going to if it's going to be successful. Well, I think it needs to be big. And and, and I agree, it, need, it, it probably would encounter some of those problems. But Labor does need to have a story. And it's not just a story to those people. Because you think about the way this issue is politically parlayed. You were making the point before, Maria, about how um, – how good Scott Morrison and, and the coalition have been at kind of leveraging up fear about change. Labor can't afford to leave these people behind because of their direct electoral impact, but he also, but it also can't afford to be seen to be cavalier about the loss of jobs because that's a more corrosive charge right across the board, you know, and that's, that's, that really has done Labor a lot of damage, particularly right through Queensland. Even people not in mining communities, uh, uh, you know, have not been supporting Labor. I mean, the primary vote's around 25%. You can't, Labor can't win with a 34, 35% primary vote, right? So they need a story to tell. And I think the story needs to be about nation building. And about this transformation and about driving it rather quickly because 2050 is not that far away. You know, there are things that have to be, there are targets that will have to be met on the way to that. So that, that's what I'd argue that this is actually a different character of thing. There are all those other issues, as Quentin says, that need to be addressed, but this is about a nation, national pivot, I suppose, and about a narrative that Labor needs to be able to talk to people about if it has, if it's to have any chance of neutralising this issue between now and the next election. Well, in some ways, that's actually quite consistent with someone like Joel Fitzgibbon's own position um, on this, which is, you know, he will sort of say like, well, miners in my community, you know, they, they don't want their children to be coal miners either. They want them to be doctors and nurses and to do the sort of usual aspirational sort of stuff. But, you know, they've got mortgages on their expensive properties mm. and they earn quite a bit of money, actually, coal miners. It's a well-paid job. And, um, yeah, but that, the that means they support that, economies too. Precisely. But that also sort of means that the jobs that they might be substituting into perhaps aren't as well paid. And that is a significant uh, loss. And I can understand exactly why um, coal mining communities might feel um, that they might not believe governments when they say 
um, they're going to look after them because look at the auto workers mm. or look at manufacturing businesses at the time of the recession in the in the 1990s, you know, uh, many of these, and they were largely men, um, never worked again. Uh, and so I think, you know, what you're saying, um, Mark, is potentially one way of labour resolving um, this issue because they can't win off the back of the inner city left vote like you know so they so even though that is effectively where their party is at they need to find a way to sort of build a coalition more broadly and um the sort of demographic and political changes that are happening in some of these seats are kind of making a lot of these voters more natural coalition uh voters but there is an appetite in these places for state interventions and perhaps this is one way of addressing it but i just keep thinking about the the dairy industry where a levy was put on and a lot of farmers took that levy and um, there was not the kind of incentive structure to get people to change their practices and once that levy period ran out um, and you had a sort of situation with the supermarkets that a lot of them just went to the wall. Mm. Yeah, so, no, there's a, there's a, a lot, of problem, yeah, lot of problems here. Um, and, look, and, and keep in mind that the whole point of this is not about Labor getting re-elected or getting elected. No. So the whole point is that, that we have an energy transition, that we do something in this country and, of course, globally, so we get better outcomes. We don't get catastrophic but climate change. But you have change. to get the politics right. I mean, this of is, course, you know, because if you don't, you can't do it. I, no, you, can't, I, you can't change the country from opposition. I, I get that. No. I get that. Yeah. yeah. So, But the question is, is the devil is in the detail here of how, how it gets done. Mm. Yes, and speaking of not being able to change the country from opposition, 2019 election was a good example of that, perhaps the exemplar of that, uh, given the range of things that Labor was proposing from the non-Treasury benches, and we saw how that ended. Now, look, we, I see as we look up at the clock that we've been going for an hour. That's longer than we normally go, but it's just been such an absorbing discussion. So thank you both to Quentin Grafton and to Maria Taflaga, uh, and thank you for listening to Democracy Sausage. Um, I'll be back later in the week. I think I'm going to be able to bring you a talk with Malcolm Knox, the author um, and uh, variously sports writer, literary editor, um, general uh, polymath, and he's written a fabulous new book called Truth is Trouble, and it's a uh, rather interesting um, examination of the Israel Folau affair and what that told us about ourselves and the nature of debate in this country and uh, the way politics works, particularly on the Christian right. So um, I hope that we can bring you that uh, later in the week. I'm doing a um, an in-conversation or meet the author uh, with Malcolm Knox uh, in a couple of days' time. We'll try and bring you that. Until then, bye for now. 